two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just saying enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD from Manhattan North Homicide Squad, where I was a sergeant. And with me tonight, and most nights, is my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, retired detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm just still uh, floating from last night's show. I mean, that was just a tremendous uh, episode that we did last night. Cheers, Palmateri. What a gentleman. God bless him. He's a sweetheart of a guy and a big supporter of law enforcement. So uh, tremendous actor. Hats off to you, pal. That was a great episode. You know, Phil, I really, really enjoyed that show. And what, what a great guy. And one of the reasons that we chose him to interview is because it's not very usual for a Hollywood star uh, to be such a big police supporter. And I'm sure he takes maybe some heat from his peers for being such a police reporter, uh, supporter. But we really appreciate that, especially in the last year, year and a half, with all the defund police nonsense and all the anti-police rhetoric. It's so good to have a, a man of his stature, his talent, and a regular guy, really cool guy. And I really enjoyed the show. I enjoyed interviewing him. And I think he enjoyed uh, hanging out with us for the hour. Yeah, you know, he uh, really is uh, uh, a regular, uh, he just tells it like it is, you know, he don't uh, hold back and he gives you his real feelings. You could see he's a warm family man. I happened to meet his daughter yesterday uh, who was filming that movie in Brooklyn and uh, his wife, lovely wife. You could see they're just lovely people that they are uh, raising two wonderful kids and uh, just happy to have uh, had the opportunity to have the conversation with him. And uh, everybody knows what a tremendous actor he is, but it's obvious he's a, he's a good human being as well. Absolutely. Uh, so great to meet the guy. Anyway, uh, folks, if you're new to this channel, you're new tonight, uh, please go to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And also we have a Patreon uh, and we have a, a new channel membership where you can join our channel and be a member for extra content. We have four levels for $2.99 a month. You're the bucket. $9.99 a month, you can polish my rack. $24.99 a month, you can be dipped in butter. And the one, the premier one for $49.99 a month, you can be in heated dipped in butter. And that's that's the elite, the elite level. The ultimate. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on. You know, we covered the case of Maya Malete, who has been missing since January 7th. And today, nine months later, they made an arrest on her husband, who was, of course, again, the old person of interest thing. Uh, I think there was no doubt he was the suspect. I'm going to just play a bit of the um, of the press conference, and um, we're going to take a look at this. It's very, very emotional. 
any of you folks that uh, have any kind of PTSD or can't handle this type of stuff, you're welcome to tune it out for a second. But uh, I'm going to put this up on the screen, and we're going to listen to the press conference, a little bit of the press conference. At 11.42 a.m., the Chula Vista Police Department SWAT team served an arrest warrant and arrested Larry Malete for the murder of his wife, Mary Larry was taken into custody at his home and was alone at the time of his arrest. And I know many of you are all very concerned about May's children. I want... It was a long and emotional press conference. It just wrapped up just seconds ago after Chula Vista police arrested the husband of missing Chula Vista mother, Maya Meliete. Again, her body has not been found. Thank you for joining us on this afternoon. I'm Kimberly Hunt. It's been nine months since Maya Meliete's disappearance, and the question still remains, where is her body? We so, Phil, you remember in this case, right, this guy, uh, Larry Miliette, was a real slick slickster, you know. His wife, Maya, she was going for a divorce, and he wasn't going to have that. You know, one of those crazies that if I can't have you, no one's going to have you. And he did all kinds of things um, to thwart the investigation. Uh, the night of January 7th, I believe, nine shots were heard by, not by any human beings reporting it, but by a camera that heard the shots being fired. And that was very incriminating. The next day, he took a long ride, like a two-and-a-half-hour ride, with his four-year-old. And that must Billy, have been I think the ride was actually longer than that. If I'm not mistaken, it was like an eight-hour ride. He was, he was missing for about eight hours or more, maybe even. Right, but it still it had to be a round-trip thing. He was missing yeah. for that long. Yeah. And they have never found the body to this day. But there's so many incriminating things when I, and I felt that one of the things I read today was that they had to pull the trigger on the arrest because he was withdrawing large amounts of money out of the bank and they felt he was about to flee. And we, we know that story again from another case. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And, uh, you know, this guy, it was obvious. Uh, we, I think, uh, I was on duty run show about this case and we profiled it here and, uh, he had a million holes in his story. It was just a matter of time before the, uh, you know, the walls closed in on him. Apparently they, uh, they sped it up a little bit. They saw him withdrawing some money, large amounts of money. So rather than have to chase him around the globe, they, uh, they snapped him up and, uh, I'm sure that there's a good case against them. And, uh, it was just great to hear those cheers from those people. That community has been uh, standing by uh, the Millette case, uh, doing everything they possibly could, could on the case, from handing out flyers to keeping it in the media. And uh, that's why you heard those cheers. I'm waiting to hear the cheers on the other case that we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry, uh, when he's brought to justice. But I guess uh, we'll get to that. But going back to what you're saying about how the body's never been found, uh, we're going to discuss some details about uh, cases like that. And um, it's not impossible. It's been done many times before where a person is presumed dead, nobody's recovered. Arrests have been made. Prosecutions have taken place and convictions were attained. So it's not an impossibility. They may have to go through those exact uh, stages with this case, but uh, it's been done before and I'm sure we can get a successful conclusion on this case as well. I'm going to just play a little bit more of the, uh, of the, after the press conference by the media there. 
Hi, Kimberly. Yeah, as you mentioned, really an emotional news conference that lasted about 50 minutes. And we have media here from around the country, but we also have uh, Maya Miliate's family. We have law enforcement, local officials, and then just people from the community who have followed this case. Uh, many of the volunteers who searched for her uh, these past nine months every weekend. And again, you heard the crowd cheering when they announced the arrest of Larry Miliate. But the DA said, this is not a win. We have lost a mother of three. But as you said, they are still looking for the body of Maya Miliate. And the DA released a lot of information, a lot of the evidence. And one of the reasons that she did that is she's hoping that somebody in the public will come forward. She, they believe that Maya was killed on or around January 7th. Uh, the last phone call that she made was to a divorce attorney. And they believe uh, that that was the reason that Larry uh, essentially snapped. And in one of the text messages that they uncovered as evidence, uh, it was a text message that Larry sent to his boss. And it said, quote, I think she wants me to snap and I am shaking inside ready to snap. They are asking people who might have any information about a black Lexus uh, if they saw it on or around January 8th. Unfortunately, they really don't have any idea where her body could be, but they're hoping that this will jog the public's memory if maybe they saw um, a black Lexus on the side of the road. It's a GS 460 with a license plate Milani. Uh, they also say that they are trying to find a 40 caliber handgun. Uh, we know that a search warrant was served at the home. They said that a 40 caliber handgun is still missing. The DA also said that this starts us down a path of justice, but this is not a win. We lost a life and they're simply bringing justice to this family. Again, the investigation was lengthy. It lasted for nine months. Uh well, obviously the investigation is not over. The hardest part now is uh, going to prosecute Larry Malette and, and get a conviction. And I think they had a lot of time to cross their T's, you know, dot their I's and get some really uh, quality evidence. And, you know, we, we've discussed this on many other cases that uh, circumstantial evidence can be very, very strong evidence. And in this case, there have been um, cases across the United States. In fact, I remember one in New York City where there was a murder conviction of a doctor. His name was Robert Bierenbaum. And I know the DA, his name's Dan Bibb, great guy, great prosecutor who's now in private practice, but he prosecuted Robert Bierenbaum and they, they sort of proved though with circumstantial records that he had somehow taken his wife's body in like a duffel bag, thrown it in the back of the trunk of his car, drove to a private airport. I believe it may have been Teterboro, got on his private plane, flew over the Atlantic ocean. And at some point dumped the body into the Atlantic ocean, which again was never, ever found. All of this done on circumstantial evidence. He got a conviction. So it is a possibility to can get a, a conviction for murder without the body being recovered. Yeah, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up. Of course, a couple of things popped into my head as I was listening to that press conference. Now, number one, we didn't have that information about that text message. That was kept close to the vest by the police department that's investigating the, the um Millet case. So again, we talk about the electronics and all the different cases we've profiled. That's something that came about based on subpoenaed records. Uh, he's now, you know, right there. Now we have 
so many things that we can introduce as circumstantial evidence. Now, what that's going to prove, that's going to prove motive. He had a motive to kill her. He was talking about snapping. Uh, she made the phone call to the, the divorce attorney. Um, the shots were heard. Um, the disappearance without his cell phone, he allegedly left his cell phone at home, surprisingly. So with all of these different things, if I was a prosecutor, I'd be taking apart these things one by one and presenting them to the jury. And if you get enough pieces of circumstantial evidence to pile up, you can very easily come up with a conviction. Like I said earlier, it's been done before and hopefully it'll be done in this case as well. But Phil, you know, what was also strange in this case is that they did not remove the children. They had at some point a few months ago removed, I think like 15 firearms from the house. And his lawyer was fighting like, oh, why are you taking his guns from him? Well, do you, don't you think the SWAT team was happy that they knew he didn't have his 15 guns with him when they did the raid today and arrested him? I think they were very confident, although the 40 caliber is missing. Well, that's uh, something very, very uh, indicative to police work. Now, somebody like him, he's a suspect in a murder case. I'm not going to call him a person of interest because he's a suspect. And one of the things that we would do in the New York City Police Department is we would check with the firearms control ball is what firearms control board, as well as the New York City Pistol License Division to see if there are any firearms registered in the home. Like you said, if we have to send a team there, whether it be to interview him or a SWAT team to make an arrest, we want to know what kind of firepower we're up against. So uh, these are things that are routinely done. And lo and behold, when they did that, they executed uh, a warrant to remove the guns the 40 caliber is missing. So that's probably going to be the murder weapon. If she ever is found, uh, the weapon has probably been discarded somewhere. Even if it's found without a body, it may not be such a crucial piece of evidence tying him to the murder. But, uh, the fact that it is missing, uh, if it is found that may lead to other things. So it's not a dead issue. I would say 100%, but, uh, without the body being recovered, uh, tying the gun to the actual murder might be a little difficult. Absolutely. Rita Schaefer, thank you so much for the 499 super sticker. Kay Ellis, will he be allowed bail? Lord, I pray not. Kay Ellis, I believe based on the fact that he was just withdrawing large amounts of money out of the bank, which was indicative uh, for his of him attempting to flee the jurisdiction, I will think it would be very difficult for him to get bailed. Uh, and, you know, look, the purpose of bail these days, is it, it's crazy in a lot of jurisdictions. It's, of course, just to secure your appearance at your next court appearance. However, in a case like this, he's got every reason to flee. You know, so if he did get bail, they, they may do an ankle monitor. They'll take away his passport. But I seriously doubt that he'll get bail at all. I mean, listen, uh, a lot of, uh, I'm going to talk about New York again. In uh, a lot of the cases before bail reform, which started about a year ago, uh, any kind of an egregious homicide uh, charge, there was uh, a request for remand uh, right off the bat by the district attorney's office. Now, there is arguments back and forth with defense attorneys, uh, you know, and they can make uh uh, appeals to the court that their client is not a flight risk, so things of that nature, giving up the passport, like you said, Billy, and uh, an ankle monitoring device. Um, there's a lot of different ways that uh, that people could be monitored. But 
I really think in a case like this, I doubt he'll get bail. I don't care how much it was. I think a remand is going to be in order. And uh, he's shown, uh, you know, uh, indications that he might be looking to flee already by withdrawing these large amounts of money. There may be other things that we don't know about. Uh, there could be travel plans. He could have spoke with someone, uh, maybe text messages, different things like that. So uh, searches on his computer for different areas of the world if he wanted to flee. So all of those things would be taken into consideration at a bail hearing. And uh, I think that, like I said, uh, I can't see this guy getting uh, bail at all. He'll probably be remanded. No, you know that. something, and I'm also I'm just baffled that uh, he had the kids for as long as he did. I would have thought that they, you know, Bureau of Child Welfare would have taken those kids a while ago. Cause look, he wasn't even allowing the other side of the family to visit the kids. Yeah. I mean, how dysfunctional, how damaging is that? And also how about the threat of him hurting his own kids? Yeah, that's quite possible in a case like this. I think that the uh, family court laws are just a little bit, uh, maybe too lenient in certain areas, in certain cases, um, unless there was a history of some type of abuse or domestic violence in the home prior to uh, this incident, they would have a hard time making an application to remove the children, I guess. I don't know what the laws are in that state, but, uh, you know, you think uh, with uh, what went on, I mean, all the indicators were pointing in the direction of him being uh, responsible for his wife's disappearance. Uh, that they may have made a, a better effort to remove those children. I agree with you, Billy. That was a dangerous situation with those kids. And I believe that the, the very concerned family members had made applications to take the kids, but uh, was never granted. Uh, I think that uh, now they'll probably be in the hands of, uh, of her family, I would hope. And uh, we'll see where the case goes. You know, Phil, before we move on to the Gabby Petito case, I just want to say one of the most uh, damaging pieces of evidence is that Maya Malete told her family that if I come up missing, it's Larry. Larry killed me before this even happened. So if that's not very powerful, powerful evidence, uh, I don't know what is. I would say that's probably the most powerful statement uh, to, to come to light in this case. And, uh, you know, uh, we had a, a, another case we've profiled. We did many shows on the Summer Worlds case. Uh, we actually, before the children were moved from that home, we actually called for it. And within a day or two of us uh, saying that we believe the kids are in danger, that they should be removed from the home, sure enough, lo and behold, they were. So you think, I don't know you think they were listening to these two New York uh, accents and uh, they took our advice or what? Well, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that a light bulb went off and somebody said, hey, let's, let's listen to these two bananas from New York, you know. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the case of uh, Gabby Petito, besides it capturing everyone's heart in this country being a national case, it's it's been an international case. In fact, her family was on 60 Minutes in, uh, in Australia. I'm going to play a little bit of that clip now because it's really so heartbreaking to hear the family and to know that this case has more or less caught the hearts of everyone in the world. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism because of that because, of course, there's been other people that have turned up uh, dead, turned up missing, and it doesn't get this uh, this kind of coverage. But let's just watch this interview here. The disappearance and murder of Gabby Petito and the ongoing mystery surrounding the whereabouts of her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, have been making headlines for more than a month. It's a crime that remains just as inconceivable now as when we first heard about it. 
How could a carefree young couple's adventure travelling across the United States spiral so far out of control? And why wasn't more done to protect Gabby when there were such obvious signs she was in danger? Tonight, her heartbroken parents speak about their love for their precious daughter and their mission to find out what really happened to her. Nobody expects anything like this to happen, let alone uh, the attention that it's gotten. Um, very surreal, almost like you're outside looking in. It's, it doesn't even feel like it's you. In a way, you know, the whole world has come to know your daughter, Gabby. Does that give you some comfort? Yes. Um, she was beautiful. She was creative, artistic, talented, um, a genuine person. Uh, and we all loved her so much. It's not easy facing the world when you're inconsolable. Everybody sees the pictures of her out there as an adult, but when I close my eyes and I think of her, I still remember a little blonde hair, bright blue-eyed uh, little girl with her hair up in, you know, ponytails and always smiling no matter what. Gabby Petito's family, her dad Joe, mum Nicole and stepfather Jim want everyone to know how wonderful she was. What was Gabby like growing up? A spitfire. She did a lot. She was very busy. She loved her friends. She was a beautiful artist, brilliant artist, um, just so talented. She was happy, genuinely happy. She's like, yeah, come on, let me show you this. She'd want to take you. Let's go, jump in the car. Let's 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 just go for a ride. We'll check it out. We'll go to the beach. Um, just just listen to the ocean. Look at the waves. Look at the sand. Watch the sunrise. Watch the sunset. Gabby's keto never goes outside. By all accounts, 22-year-old Gabby loved Brian Laundrie as much as she loved life. The couple met at high school, but their relationship got serious after they graduated. Last year, Brian asked Gabby to marry him. It happened pretty quickly. He was very polite and quiet. Every time he would come over, he was polite. He, he talked with our other other children as well. You know, they they got to know him and they liked him. So draw them pictures and stuff. He would read books to my little one at night before bed. So he just seemed like a nice guy. As well as a life together, Gabby and Brian dreamed of adventure. In early July, they quit their jobs, loaded up their little van, and hit the road. Their plan was a trip across the United States sharing their fun with anyone who wanted to follow them on social media. She always wanted to do this. She planned it out. She she knew what she wanted to do, and uh, she knew where she wanted to go. So it's she had a really good plan. As parents, did you have any concerns about this trip? Oh, of course. Um, I worried. Um, I told her to be careful, be safe, you know, make sure... The, to be aware of your surroundings, um, you know, don't trust everybody. Uh, I knew, I, but I felt safe because she was with Brian and I, I felt like she would be okay. I think, I thought he would take care of her. To begin with, their journey was picture perfect. A beautiful young couple road tripping through America, stopping in some...
You know, Phil, uh, looking at all this stuff, it's so it's so heartbreaking and everything. But you know, the news and and reporters they always say how obvious this was. It, why wasn't it obvious then to her parents? If it was so obvious to the news, like right now, it's so obvious, you know. And I don't think it was that obvious because the parents would have would have noticed something really bad, and they didn't. I agree with you, Bill. I don't think it was obvious at all. Uh, based on the statements that you just heard there, they're saying that, you know, they th- he would read books to the younger siblings and things like that. So he didn't, you know, he doesn't uh, give an appearance of uh, a person that could be dreadful or mean, I mean, you know, from his general appearance. And I don't think that they saw it. I mean, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, as they say. And uh, he may have had another side to him that maybe only – Gabby knew, and she may have not revealed that to many people. So on the surface, the family probably thought he was a good guy. They probably thought he was a reasonable guy that wouldn't do such a, a horrible thing. That uh, You know, I mean, let's face it, coming back from uh, Utah without their daughter and just carrying on his life, that alone is uh, disgusting in my opinion. And the part about that the uh, people are kind of getting outraged that there's so much focus on this case. Listen, every victim deserves to have the proper amount of attention through the media. But uh, I think that we had that extra step with this case because of the fact that you saw those live videos of them, uh, you know, going through the countryside, visiting these national parks, having this wonderful journey. It was an adventure. It's something like out of a, uh, you know, like a storybook, like a fantasy, you know. And then you have the other part of it is, the interaction on August the 12th with the Moab police, which was over an hour of interaction captured on body cam. And I think you saw a completely different side of what was going on in their lives at the time. So those two components, based on the fact that the egregiousness of the way that the family and Brian carried on after she was obviously already dead, I think all of those components is what generated such a terrific media attention in this case internationally as well as within the United States, Bill. 100%. You know, uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Washkel, who is a great friend of the show, uh, he, I was I actually asked him to come on tonight. He, he couldn't make it, but I asked him to describe uh, in psych, psychological terms uh, Brian Laundrie's personality. And he told me that he's an antisocial, he has antisocial personality disorder. Uh, antisocial personality disorder, sometimes called sociopathy, is a mental disorder in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. People with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly or with callous indifference. Um, I think he shows a lot of those traits. Um, They show no guilt or remorse for their behavior. Individuals with antisocial personality disorder often violate the law, becoming criminals. They may lie, behave violently or impulsively, and have problems with drug and alcohol use. Because of these characteristics, people with this disorder typically can't fulfill responsibilities related to family, work, or school. I think, you know, Brian Laundrie, he, it doesn't seem like he's got a drug problem or an alcohol problem, but he definitely has a problem with taking responsibility, telling the truth, owning up to his behavior, all of which are characteristics of an antisocial 
personality disorder, not even to say about how he has just taken off. You know, he's, he's, he's taken off and coming home, driving home with her van and immediately invoking counsel. I, I just think that all of these things make him, uh, you know, an antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, 100%, Billy. And when you look up uh, these symptoms, I mean, disregard for right and wrong, persistent lying, deceit to exploit others, being callous, cynical, disrespectful, using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain or personal pleasure. You saw his manipulation when he was interacting with the police. There's just so many of them. But one of the ones that really jumps out at me is poor or abusive relationships. He fell into that category, as we know, from uh, the information we garnered from Gabby's friends that he was very possessive of her. He tried to control her by hiding her driver's license when she would want to go out with her friends. And again, you know, you're talking about a sociopath. Uh, I think it's also very narcissistic. Dr. Phil referred to him as a a self-absorbed narcissistic abuser. I think all of these categories, he fits into all of them. Um, the one thing that we don't really know, he doesn't have an extensive criminal record. I mean, it, it kind of indicates that a person of his age might have been in trouble with the law several times before. Who knows if he bobbed and weaved through some of those things or he just didn't have that uh, specific symptom that they talk about in this antisocial personality disorder. Absolutely. Scott Wagner, uh, two, three detective squad. Thank you so much for the, uh, 199 super chat. You have been a big supporter of the show and we thank you for that. You know, um, disregard for right or wrong, persistent lying or deceit to exploit others, being callous, cynical, and disrespectful of others. But you know, he didn't show a lot of these traits because we just heard the family talking about what a wonderful guy he was. So, how did, you know, when people talk about how obvious his behavior was, it clearly wasn't that obvious that uh, the family didn't recognize it. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And the last two of the symptoms that I'm looking at, failure to consider the negative con consequences of behavior or learn from them. And then the last one is being consistently irresponsible and repeating, repeatedly failing to fulfill work or financial obligations. Those two kind of fall into the fact that, you know, he may have strangled Gabby and then he went and used her credit card. So those two right there are falling right in, jumping out at me from the symptoms that are listed that we uh, talked about on this disorder. But uh, I guess, listen, if you're a narcissist and you're a sociopath, to hide your, you know, uh, your bad traits isn't really going to be that difficult if you fall into that category. Because a narcissist will never take blame. They will always... Uh, play the victim and and show how it's not them. Uh, it's not me. It's them. It's the other person. It's never them. They never take responsibility for anything. And you know they're they're not gonna uh, they're not gonna broadcast. Maybe in a personal relationship like with Gabby, he may have you know those th those evil traits might have really came to the surface, but she didn't really tell anybody. But in the general uh, you know everyday life, he may not in front of her parents. He may have acted like a boy scout. You know, Phil, uh, Lorna McKenzie in the chat says his parents enable him too. Oh, yeah. I, I always use that expression, you know, uh, and it's, it's sort of corny, but the apple never falls too far from the tree, you know, and if he's like that, chances are, and not all the time, but not, you can't always use that analogy. But in this case, I think you can, because I don't 
like at all the behavior of his parents. And uh, Lorna McKenzie, you hit it right on the head. Yes, uh, his parents are enabling him. They're enabling this behavior. How did they not have very strong feelings for Gabby in the two years that she lived in their home? How did they just dismiss that? Uh, I have a hard time. Uh, I have a hard time believing that. You know. Yeah, absolutely, Lorna. I think you uh, brought up a very good point. Uh, Bill and I were just discussing that right before we went on the air. How we believe that uh, the parents may also exhibit these narcissistic and antisocial personality disorder behavior symptoms, because again, uh, you know, if he's uh, growing up under those type of uh, you know those type of traits. It's not that much of a stretch for him to also fall into that, as well as the fact, if you read up on this, it says that there is a component where it's hereditary. So, I mean, listen, uh, you know, uh, never taking blame, maybe when he was a little boy, if he did something wrong, whether it be in school or playing with his friends or whatever the case, and they overcompensated and protected him, that starts the ball rolling with this behavior. And there's probably just a lot of different things that may have happened, uh, you know, that that he became more and more of uh, a narcissist and an abuser. And if you look at the behavior of the parents, I mean, it's quite clear that they're indignant about the fact that she's even, you know, uh, reported missing and that people are in front of their house uh, protesting. So, you know, uh, I think that they're just uh, they're not in touch with what's going on. And I could clearly and easily see, make the stretch to say that they're narcissistic as well. Absolutely. Amanda Johnson Williams, thanks for your uh, comment. Yes, sociopaths really lack empathy, particularly in close relationships, no remorse or conscience. Well, 100%. a guy who can just, uh, and of course, look, I know people in the chat are saying he's innocent to proven guilty. And I am, um, I'm, a, I'm not just assuming, I believe there's probable cause to arrest him for her murder and I believe he, he he's guilty of a murder, but he, of course he's going to get a trial and he's innocent to proven guilty. But I mean, I, I, again, this is not a trial. This is a police perspective on what we see from our experience in law enforcement. And that's, that's my opinion. Foxy, fuzzy doxy. Good show as always. Thanks guys. Thank you for the nine ninety nine super chat. Very much appreciated. Phil, let's go to a quick, um, a quick commercial. I want to make a point before you go to the break, though, Bill. You okay. made a uh, you made such a great point. We dealt with almost fifty years between your career and mine. We dealt with presumed innocent until proven guilty through our whole careers, and that's part of the criminal justice system that we're in, and we're both okay with that. Doesn't mean that we don't believe that he's guilty. We we put forward an investigation. We put our faith in that investigation when we make an arrest and then we go forward with the prosecution. Now, the way that the, the criminal justice system is set up, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, which that's the way the system is. That's fine. Again, we put enough evidence forward in a case and we may believe 100% that that person is guilty. They may or not be, may or may not be found guilty. So uh, the system is the system and we're okay with that. We play by the rules. Uh, you know, and uh, hopefully uh, this case is going to is going to be solved successfully. Joe Murray, attorney at law. I hope he was listening to my last little uh, jab at the uh, at the criminal justice system. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? 
Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. And his telephone number is 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe at jmurray-law.com. Guys, this is D, and D owns her own company called D's Designs 107. And she makes a lot of, um, I'm going to show you what she makes. These are uh, Christmas ornaments, personalized Christmas ornaments. And what better time to start ordering them is right in October. What better way to honor our first responders than a personalized Christmas ornament that will act as a reminder of their hard work and dedication? Each ornament is a three by five inch wide and can be customized with a name, a badge number, a county, etc. There's also room on the back for an engraved personal message to your favorite first responder. Each ornament has a few different variations depending on your likes. Please contact us and let us help you create a very unique gift for you to give to your first responder. Please leave all details in the custom customization box for name, etc. on the front of the ornament. And if you like an inscription on the back, Leave those details in the customization box as well. You'll receive a confirmation before anything is printed. And here's the website, d's-designs-107.myshopify.com. When I say d's, I feel like saying d's, those, and dems. You know, isn't that the, isn't that what I say? Give me some of these, some of those, and some of dems. But uh, this is d's right here. And d's, uh, d's a great person. She's actually a court stenographer. So she's making the big bucks selling those minutes to the judges, the lawyers, the Joe Murrays of this world. So that's these companies. So order your order your uh, designs right now because it's will be in time for Christmas. And we have Tommy Dades to thank for that commercial because he put us in touch with D. Thank you, Tommy. Uh, yeah, she looks like a real nice lady, and that's a great uh, Christmas gift. Uh, it's got handmade and it's quality material. So there you have it, D's. You know, one of the big things right now, of course, is uh, everyone is is wondering where the hell is Brian Laundry? You know, and if he's in fact still alive, where is he? Where has he fled to? Who's helped him flee? Uh, is he still in the United States? Is he in Mexico? You know, th th those are questions that none of us can answer. But we do know that we have some great people looking for him. The Fugitive Task Force are the greatest um, hunters of humans that I know on this planet. And if if they're after you, <laughs> you do not want them after you, trust me, because they're going to find you. And it may take some time, but they're going to catch uh, Brian Laundrie. If Brian Laundrie's still alive, they're going to catch him. Let me just pull up uh, on Ashley Banfield the other day. They had a little thing about the psychology of a fugitive. I'm just going to pull up and play a little bit of that so you can understand what these people are up against. Uh, so this is on. This was featured on the Ashley Banfield show. But the real life pursuit of a fugitive takes a lot more man hours than the 90 minutes on the silver screen. And emotionally and mentally is draining for the hunter and for the prey. And thankfully, I have both with me tonight. Joining us now is forensic psychologist Dr. Michael Bork. He is the former chief psychologist for the United States Marshals Service. He created the behavior analysis unit for the marshals. It was his job to help find fugitives like. Brian Laundrie, and Seth Ferrante. Seth, 
spent two years on the run after faking his own death rather than face the consequences of going to prison for 20 years plus and having to rat out his friends for drug dealing. He was on the U.S. Marshals' top 15 most wanted list, but today he is the writer-producer of the documentary called White Boy, about a drug dealer named Rick Wersh, currently streaming on Netflix. Um, Seth, can you identify with what Brian Laundrie might be dealing with tonight, one month into being a fugitive, based on your experience of two years? Yeah, I can definitely identify, you know, with him. I think when, when I was a fugitive, the first couple months were, were the hardest, you know, the, those first couple of weeks into two, three months, that's when you don't really know, you know, you don't really know what's going on. You know, there's a lot of paranoia. You kind of think the cops are around every corner. You know, you, you kind of think, you know, the cops know everything, you know, at first, you know, it, it takes a while to kind of, you know, ease into that lifestyle. So I believe right now he's, he's very paranoid and really looking over his shoulder. So, if that's the case, uh, does that last? Uh, does the paranoia last, or do you eventually get kind of comfy in your new skin? And um, do you let your guard down? No, you do let your guard down. It, it took me about five or six months, you know, because after five or six months, if you last that long, you kind of realize, like, you know, maybe law enforcement is not going to find me, you know, if, if, if I don't slip up, you know, if I don't, you know, give them a break, because... A lot of the times, that's that's what they're kind of looking for. They're looking for that break. They're looking for that one slip up. And then once they find it, I mean, they're going to pounce on you. I would think, Michael Bork, that that in your, you know, business is, you know, creating basically the behavioral unit uh, of the U.S. Marshals, that would be really important, wouldn't it? That waiting for that moment, almost letting them hang themselves, waiting for them to get comfy or waiting for them to miss their old lives. Is that just, that just sounds normal to me. Does that, does that play right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty accurate. Um, you should uh, consider uh, joining our unit at some point uh, because that's exactly what <laughs> we do. Uh, the, the, the deputies are out there. They're, they're constantly putting that pressure on those fugitives. So they don't, um, they're, they're relentless. They don't let up at all. They are, um, you know, 24-7, they're out there looking for these fugitives. So it, it really is almost an unfair power balance in that they're waiting for the fugitives to slip up, as Seth said, or become a bit complacent, uh, at which time all those pressures come to bear and, and they make an apprehension. So, Michael, what do you think the first mistake Brian Laundrie might make? If, in fact, he's on the run. Listen, there's a couple of variables, right? He could be dead. Um, but he could just be out there. What do you think, based on what little we know of him, what might be one of his first mistakes? You know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, sometimes when we try to predict behavior like that, we, 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 we're really off base because um, it's the emotional ties that, that sometimes pull people back into their life and, and have them make a mistake. It's, it's not so much the... Um, you know, that they uh, need to find a, a place to get something to eat or they're, um, they're stopped by an officer for trespassing or something like that. Um, it's, it's wanting to attend a funeral of a loved one or, or wow. attend the graduation of, of their adult child or, you know, something that sort of tugs at their heartstrings. And, you know, I think for Brian, it, you know, his, his world right now is in a state of chaos. His support system is gone. 
Uh, he doesn't have, you know, uh, the same methods to communicate with people. He doesn't have the same ways to alleviate stress. Uh, the, the ways he used to deal with stress have been taken away. So as the stress increases and his coping, you know, uh, strategies decrease, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that manifests. And, and I do believe he'll make a mistake in the next few months. So, Seth, I found it fascinating to, to learn that your mom would send you brownies to a uh, mailbox, which is just astounding to me, and that you also had a chance to speak with her on the phone about once a month via payphone. I get it from where you were that would be possible, but I can understand how the authorities didn't have uh, eyes on her to, to see where she was mailing these things or to see the phone calls that she was receiving. How did, how did that slip by them? Yeah, they, they actually, the U.S. Marshals visited my mom once a month, you know, at, at her home. And they would actually come and knock on the door, you know, and say, hey, you know, do you know where your son is? You, has he contacted you? And my mom would tell him straight up. She would say, I don't know where my son is. But if I did know where my son is, I wouldn't tell you. You know, so that was kind of how it went. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's like anything, man. You know, your parents love their kids. Like, e even Brian Laundrie, his parents love him. You know, so I believe, you know, they're going to help him and they're going to do whatever they can to help him stay free. So do, so it sounds like you have some sympathy for them because you've been in that boat. Did you deliberately keep information from your mother so that she wouldn't be complicit or, or you know, be, you know, exposed to harboring? Oh, yeah. Like, I wouldn't give her my address where I'm staying or let her know exactly where I'm staying. Yeah, because I wouldn't want her to have that information, you know, because if she was in a situation, you know, where they were pressing her, I mean, if she doesn't know anything, then she can't help them. Hmm. Amazing, right? Uh, it's what, yeah. what, what better person to ask uh, about the psychology of uh, staying on the lam than someone that's, uh, that's done that before, you know? But I tell you, one of the things that we used to do uh, was we'd shake the tree of the family of the suspect, meaning we'd go there, we'd... Uh, pressure. Ourselves. Yeah, pressure. Make ourselves a nuisance. And then right. we would dump their phone right after we left. Right. And chances are they called the suspect right after we left, like saying, oh, my God, the police are hassling us every minute. And that's how you'd get the phone number, you know? Catman Records. Thank you so much for the $5 super chat. If city was New York City instead of Northport, would you have to search every inch of Central Park if the parents said this, that's where Brian went? Who decides? The FBI? No, the NYPD would decide in a situation like that. But I don't know if I would believe the parents of the missing that uh, he fled to Central Park. I just don't, uh, I don't think I'd buy that. Just like I don't buy uh, that... The, the father of Brian Laundrie, Chris Laundrie, went into the Carlton Reserve and was helping the FBI. I think that was 100% a smokescreen, and it was just designed to keep him out of trouble once the arrest is made. He could say, oh, look, I helped the FBI. I helped the police. Uh, I think that was purely a smokescreen. Your thoughts, Phil? Oh, yeah, I agree with you 100% on that, Billy. And, you know, uh, if they want to do something that's going to make themselves look good, bring Brian in and say we he called us and he said he wants to uh, turn himself in. And that will play a lot 
in, in, you know, with them regarding these protests in front of their house and, and things like that. And, you know, he's not going to walk away from this. I think that's clear. But, uh, you know, I've been watching some news reports and, and a lot of people are outraged that an arrest warrant hasn't been issued. Now, with the case that they uh, they put an arrest warrant for him on the use of the uh, electronic the device, the credit card, I think that's enough. People don't realize that the same effort is going into looking for him based on the fact that he's a suspect, not a person of interest in the murder. They could say person of interest all they want. He's a suspect. And now that they have that warrant for that uh, electronic device use, um, an arrest warrant for homicide, it's not that important to the case, you know? Um, I've been seeing a lot of people, specifically John Walsh was talking about it, and he's outraged and all of that. So I, I don't think that that really is a very important component at this point. Once he's captured, uh, I would venture to say if he's in custody tomorrow, there would be an arrest warrant. They'd indict him very shortly thereafter. So that's that part of it. it with regard to the protests that are going on at the laundry house, now this is indicative of the fact that they're um, – they're, uh, I guess I want to call it a shield or their, their, their barrier that uh, they have between them and the media and these protests is starting to crumble because over the weekend there were protesters outside the house and they took a sign and it said, what if it was Cassie referring to Brian's sister, their other daughter. And they put the sign on the lawn along with there's about probably a dozen other signs. Well, within, I guess a few minutes, the father came out, grabbed the sign and he threw it into the backyard. So he's starting to feel the pressure. One other thing, I mean, he was mowing the lawn the other day, just, you know, go get somebody to mow the lawn. If you're in this situation, if you're not going to cooperate, you're putting yourself out there doing these ridiculous things. And the reporters walked with him up and down the lawn, throwing questions at him. And all of that's doing when a reporter says on tape, as you're mowing the lawn, how do you feel the fact that, the autopsy has been revealed and Gabby was strangled to death and, and everybody thinks your son did it and he doesn't have any reaction or he just the fact that she's dead. They, they threw so many questions at him. If he doesn't respond, it looks bad. So, you know, I'm not trying to give him advice. I think that the point I'm trying to make is that they're starting to feel the pressure of what's going on at their home. You know, Phil, I, as much as um, I don't like the behavior of um, the laundry family, the parents, I still don't think people have the right to like protest on their property. I've seen news reporters almost standing at their door. I mean, first of all, I mean, once they cross that, you know, your your actual property, that's trespass. You know, yeah. uh, Joe no, Murray has something. Joe I Murray could Joe Murray couldn't help himself. He has to say something. Joe Murray, thanks <laughs> for the five dollar super chat, and he says, "The more time that goes by, I fear that Brian may in fact be innocent." And this was just a rush to judgment because oh of the prior God. domestic incident. Thank God, Joe, you're not on the show tonight. We'd be getting some hate mail. <laughs> you know, you know, Bill, you made a point, and I, 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 for a second, I thought I was listening to Joe Murray, but it's true. It's really true. People should not protest and and you know violate by trespassing onto their property. I'm okay with that, and I agree with that. I did say that in the beginning. You know, if these people weren't cooperating, that maybe there should be a protest by the house. But that doesn't mean that you have to break the law and trespass or anything like that. Now, with that said, over the weekend, I failed to mention this. The father was seen with a hand truck loading boxes into his truck or his pickup truck, whatever it is. So there might be an indication that they may be looking to hightail it out of that location for a while. Who knows, uh, you know, what's going to be. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, they're probably going to be hard pressed to make an escape. I would say reporters are out there 24 hours a day. Uh, protesters all day long. So if they do try to make an escape in the middle of the night, there's possible ways that they could do it and get to a location that nobody knows. But it's only a matter of time before somebody will recognize them and then that location will be compromised and they'll be over there too. So, uh, or, or they'll just follow them from the scene, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, you, you know, you can have, you, there's ways, I don't want to give them any ideas, but you, you, you could get around it. I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> if it were me, I would get out of there and, and with the help of some people. I, I, I think you're right. I think they should get out of there. But when you compare, not that there's any comparing one case to another, but the Maya Milete case and Larry Milete, who was just arrested. Some pe people are asking in the chat, oh, who was arrested? It's a different case. Uh, right. Brian Longy was not arrested. Larry Malete was arrested today for the murder of his wife that we all believe happened on January 7th, uh, 2021, in Chula Vista, uh, California, which is very close to San Diego. He was just arrested today based on the fact that the FBI was afraid because they had been tracking his bank account. He was withdrawing large sums of money, and they were afraid he was going to flee the jurisdiction. So they... Uh, they got the arrest warrant. They hit the house, and he's under arrest right now. So that's what that all that that's what that is about. But it, very different from this case because in this case, Brian Longy was not considered a wanted person. He was considered a person of interest <laughs> in the very beginning, yeah. and he was allowed to slip away, which I think is still a huge embarrassment to the you know the Florida Police Department. Covering this jurisdiction, Northport I think that PD, yeah, Northport PD. I believe it's a big black eye, of course. and I don't think they're proud of that. But it happened, you know, and mistakes are made. And look, I, the NYPD, the biggest police department in the world, the best. We make mistakes all the time, and sometimes mistakes are made for the wrong reasons, like for not wanting to pay overtime. That, that's that's a traditional huge mistake that big bosses make. They don't want to pay the overtime, so they pull people off a very, very important location. And voila, yeah. the guy gets away, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Bill, I, I just want to make one other point about the Maya Millette case. That was breaking news from earlier today. That's cases that we have uh, profiled previously. And that's why we brought it up in the beginning of the show. It has nothing to do with the Gabby Petito case. However, uh, uh, as Bill stated, the husband was arrested today. He was charged with uh, the murder of his wife, Maya. Nobody has been recovered, and uh, we'll be talking about that case again, I'm sure, sometime in the future. But uh, back to this case, listen, um, you know, uh, as time goes on, you know, uh, that guy that they had on who was a fugitive and had escaped for a few years or whatever it was, I think it was two and a half years that the uh, the marshals were looking for him. I don't know that that's going to be the case with this uh, Brian Laundry. Uh, I don't know. You seem to feel that he might be out of the country, Bill. I mean, it's quite possible. My feeling, I don't know, based on the fact that the family went on that trip, they went and bought the camper. Lo and behold, there's a new camper as soon as he comes back for camping for two months. That's kind of strange to me. I don't think that, uh, you know, maybe they planned to use the camper as a hideout for him. And then when they realized it was just not going to work out since they had just purchased the camper, people saw it and stuff like that. They may have come up with another plan to secrete him into the woods, hide food in different locations, maybe even. I just have a feeling that he's somewhere within reach. I don't think he's out of the United States. That's just my own personal opinion. Susan Albinger, right? Uh, the Northport police screwed up. 
the officer had the nerve to reply to Brian Enton, reporter, you were here, you didn't see him leave. Really? That's not his job. That's the police's job. I agree with you. You shouldn't be asking a reporter, hey, watch the house for us, you know? But uh, look, mistakes are made. And uh, I think that, you know, they made a mistake with that. And they, they, they've, they've owned up to it. And uh, Lori Ann Fabian, Joe Murray, Larry Malette killed Gabby. Case closed. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, uh, Lisa Bollier, the neighbors are being paid 3500 a week each for the media to camp out on their property. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't doubt that could happen, but I don't, I have no evidence that that's happening. Jeez, and I was just about to say I feel sorry for the neighbors on that block, but uh, maybe not so much anymore if they're getting thirty five hundred. Uh, uh, I, I I would find it hard to believe that any uh, station would pay to to yeah that don't do sound something right. that they, they could get for free. I just want to um, pull up a, another short clip here of uh, the family speaking to the media here. Speak more about uh, this case, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. I mean, obviously, uh, this story has gone around the world in that 60 Minutes Australia has interviewed this family now. Gabby's family saying they believe that Brian is hiding uh, for sure on the run after the murder of his girlfriend, though he's still only considered a person of interest. Uh, his parents have not been charged with any crime. But if it is indeed found to be true that his parents helped him escape, could they be charged with a crime? Of course. Even of course. If the parents facilitated his escape, um, then of course there are accessories after a murder. Uh, if they lied to agents, you know, remember that so far the parents have been speaking through their lawyer, which shields them from any culpability. But if they made any material misrepresentation, willful, will, were willfully untruthful, um, hid a material fact while a federal investigation is pending, that's what we call a 1001 violation and obstruction of justice as well. But again, I think their culpability is going to turn, Adrian, on what they knew, when they knew it, and what they said or did about it. Yeah, and that's for sure, because it will be interesting to consider what the courts will find is considered helping him, right? They have to have known that he planned on going and, and escaping into this reserve or wherever he is uh, going to be eventually found with the intention of evading law enforcement. If they thought, oh, let me pack you a lunch, it might be considered a little bit different, and maybe they will be able uh, to say that they didn't have any criminal uh, culpability here. But Brian, Absolutely. again... Brian is still the sole person of interest in her death. Uh, do you think that, let's just say he's the person who is found guilty. Let's just say that's, that's the issue. What were the charges be now? What would it look like in terms of sentencing for a man who would have killed Gabby in the way that he did? Right. It, this is absolutely, Adrian, about proof beyond a reasonable doubt towards a conviction, not just probable cause to arrest him. And as we know, prosecutors can charge a ham sandwich. Here you have a, I don't know, a rich bowl of pasta with Brian Laundry. Um, if he were to be found and charged and, you know, uh, prosecuted, there are two homicide charges under federal law that we're talking about here. These are alternative charges of second degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. First degree murder is the killing of a human being with malice aforethought. Any other type of killing would be second degree murder facing up to life in prison under federal law. Now, voluntary manslaughter, the manslaughter is a killing 
willing to be a human being without malice aforethought and voluntary being upon a sudden quarrel or uh, in the heat of passion. So domestic violence in Gabby and Brian's relationship is going to cut both ways, Adrian, because the prosecutor is going to say, look, they were always quarreling. There was always violence in this relationship. So this was deliberate. This was willful. This is second degree murder. Um, and of course, the defense is actually going to use that domestic violence to say, no, this was this was yet another instance of a quarrel, uh, a heat of passion that led to her killing. And let's not forget, Adrian, that she was found not buried, not hidden. Uh, you know, she was at a campsite. So that that also shows some level of spontaneity, which goes to that heat of passion killing. Sarah Azari, thank and you. And I'm so sorry much. for voluntary manslaughter is 15 years, up to 15 okay. years in prison. All right. Thank I'm glad she explained that to us. You know, I mean, uh, well, she made some good points, though. You know, well, she did. She did. We've been down this road before. We talked about, uh, you know, when when the autopsy report came out, the old the heat of passion thing, uh, which is, you know, most strangulations are done by intimate, you know, intimate partners, and at least in domestic violence cases. Uh, someone's asking me, can I elaborate why I think? Brian Laundrie is out of the country. Well, I think that he had a lot of time to get away. Uh, Al Alex, uh, I think that his family helped him get out in the first few days. Just realize that Mexico is not far to go from, from Florida. You know, he could be in Mexico very quickly. And I don't think anyone in Mexico would be interested in returning him back to the United States. There's people pouring through our borders every day. Why would they care that this guy's in Mexico? You know, that's my feelings because uh, them searching the Carlton Reserve, you know, the the that trail, I just don't see it. I just think that he had plenty of time to get away, and I think he had a lot of help to get away. That's it's just a gut feeling that I have, but that's my feelings. Yeah, I think that's quite possible, Bill, because they did get a head start based on uh, you know the fact that. Uh, there was that trip and uh, he came home and, you know, he was home on the first and it was no uh, police report or missing persons report done until the 11th. And then even on the 11th, uh, from that point, uh, they weren't cooperating. They did do, uh, you know, when Brian was already in the wind, they did a search of the van and stuff. So, uh, you know, if you look at it, yeah, the possibility is definitely there. He had a good head start. Like you said, Mexico is not far. I don't think anybody's rushing to return him, as you said, if he is down in Mexico. Um, I don't know. Just my feeling was uh, because of this, this whole camping trip, that's what put me in the camp of uh, thinking that they went into that. I guess it's either the Carlton Reserve or the other one. Um, have written down here, you know, one of those locations that uh, that they've been certain searching. You know, uh, the the Appalachian Fort, Trail was that? The, the Appalachian Trail, Fort yeah. DeSoto Park. Yeah, right. I, I know that they had visited that Fort DeSoto Park. So, and it, it leads into the Appalachian Trail. So, from the Appalachian Trail, if he if he's taking that trail. Uh, he could be, you know, four states, five states away by now, maybe even more to that. So, yeah, th there's a good possibility of both of those scenarios. So. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you... Uh, you, you know, Joe, Joe Murray is trying to stir the pot again. Here he is. Uh, thank you again, Joe, for the $10 super chat. His comments are, there is no motive, no witnesses, no prior assaults alleged by Brian. Brian's MO of walking away, he even flew home for seven days. So he cannot be accused of being obsessive and jealous if it doesn't fit. Oh, wait, are you going to use that line from the OJ case? 
If the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit. <laughs> we we got to get, we that, gotta get him a, back on because that, 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 that's a West Coast expression, Joe Murray. But, you know, yeah. something, Joe, when we talk about, uh, and we, we've enumerated numerous times, all the things that um, are circumstantial evidence, okay? They had this argument on August 12th, which everyone, many, many people felt an arrest should have been made that day. And after the fact, and after I knew all of the information, and I wasn't there, but and I don't know what information they had in real time, but if I would have had all the information, the call about, uh, 911 call about him smacking Gabby, the uh, information about her hitting him in the side of the head with her cell phone, he actually had cuts on his face. I think as the patrol supervisor, as a boss responding to the scene, I probably would have arrested both of them. Would that have saved her life? I I honestly can't say that it would have, you know, because we believe that the murder occurred on or about the 27th of August. So that was 15 days later. So if that they weren't cooled off by that point, an arrest certainly wasn't going to uh, cool their heels. And people will say, well, how about domestic violence follow-up? I mean, they were a traveling couple. I don't. They didn't have an ad- address in Wyoming. I don't know if domestic violence social workers were going to go visit them in their van. I don't see that happening. So in a perfect world, uh, yeah, would they have had domestic violence uh, follow-up after both of them were arrested? In a perfect world, yeah. But in a traveling van, not having an address, I don't think that was going to happen. Yeah, I think that's really a good point, Bill, because we had brought up after we did um, an episode with uh, Gisela from uh, Gisela Kirsten from Grizzly Books. She uh, had mentioned about, you know, checking in on them on the next day. Now, like you said, if he checked out at a hotel bright and early and got in the van with her and they left, it would have been difficult to uh, even check in on them. I mean, it, it was a good suggestion. I think it should be considered in other domestic violence issues going forward. But uh, to answer Joe Murray, what he just said, I'm going to make a one sentence comment. If all of those things he said were true, why did Brian flee? Why did he flee? He, he needs to answer for his actions. He should not have fled. If he didn't do it, why did he flee? That's all I'm going to say about that for now. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, uh, we're on the same page. He said both collared, yes. And uh, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, if you guys don't know him yet in the chat, he's a uh, legendary lieutenant from the NYPD, 3-2 precinct, which is in the center of Harlem. He was there for a number of years. Uh, put such a dent in the drug trade that the mafia had a hit out on him. And this is, this is when the Italian mafia ran the drugs in Harlem. And uh, then he became a, a lieutenant in the legendary NYPD street crime unit, where I actually knew him. Uh, I was there for a year, and he had one of the squads. I forget which squad he had. Uh, it may have been the uh, – I'm probably going to pick the wrong one. I think he had the A, a squad. And I was on the midnights. Uh, the street crime midnights were 9.30 at night to 6 in the morning. Wonderful tour for for, for life. <laughs> wonderful tour to never ever sleep again. A wonderful tour not to know when to eat. A wonderful tour never to know when you have to get up. You know, so it was it was crazy. But that's when all the action happened between nine thirty at night to six in the morning. So, but Lieutenant Pete, uh, I'm glad you uh, were on the same page as me. 
He's a, he's a good man, Lieutenant Pete. Uh, he just did an interview with Gisela Carson that I just uh, referenced on Grizzly Books. I watched it last week. Uh, it was a pretty good interview. I think uh, any of you guys, uh, subscribers, go over and take a look at it, and you'll see uh, just who he is and what he's about. He's a terrific uh, law enforcement officer. You know, I just want to say a, a lot of, um, you know, TV and a lot of content creators on YouTube uh, are reporting on this case. And I think there's been, uh, from the YouTube content creators, I think there's been really outstanding coverage on this case. There's almost no stone left unturned. Uh, Duty Ron has done an amazing job with uh, Barbara Butcher and uh, Ed Wallace, the first grade retired NYPD crime scene detective. Uh, I mean, I think Duty Ron almost broke the internet with one episode. He had 1.8 million uh uh, watches on one episode views. with, with Bob, views with Barbara Butcher and uh, Ed Wallace when they um, conferred about the autopsy on Gabby Petito. I mean, I've never seen anyone get that many views in on one episode. That was incredible. And I want to uh, take my hat off to duty, Ron. He also received a little certificate from YouTube for having over 100,000 subscribers. I believe he's up to uh, 114,000 right now, which is a tremendous, tremendous achievement. I hope one day I can be there too. I got to get that. Yeah, congrats, duty run. I got to get that case that just catapults me into the stratosphere. And uh, I hope Phil can help me do that, you know, because they, oh, like the, they like these Italian guys coming out of Brooklyn, straight out of Brooklyn, you know. He's stirring the sauce all day and then he comes on at night, you know. They, they like that. After eating my veal parmesan. That's right, after yeah. eating his veal cutlet parmesan hero, you know, he's here. he's here at night. You know, folks, if you're not, again, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, please go over to our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. And I see all my channel members in the green font, and I appreciate you guys so much. Factual breakdown. Mamachi, what's your, you made a comment. Brian had a terrible temper and choked Gabby out in front of others. Sorry, Joe. That's a criminal in the making. <laughs> we, don't want to, we don't want to get Joe started again, right? Uh, Catherine, wow, Pranzo, uh, Shannon, Georgia Peach, Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders. I said this too from the beginning. Arrest both. Maybe you could have saved Gabby. You know, it's a possibility. You know, it's uh, we call that the woulda, shoulda, coulda syndrome, but it's all, all Monday morning quarterbacking. What was the English expression uh, that they said? I love their expression. Oh uh, yeah, something with the football, no? Obvious something. Uh, yeah, yeah, they they had a they had a great expression for yeah. it. And, yeah, well, uh, I love I love I love you guys from across the pond, the UK. You guys have your own language too. I mean, you speak English, but you have expressions just like we do that we yeah. don't use that we don't use over here. And so do the Irish. The Irish, when you know, they have their own words for things, and you just like, whoa. I mean, I always remember. Um, listening to Van Morrison's song uh, and the, the one, the Wild Night, when he says, as you brush your shoes and stand before the Merle. And I was I was like, what the hell's a Merle? It's a mirror. You know, but that was an Irish, a Gaelic word for uh, for, for mirror. And you use Merle. Uh, and you comb your hair and grab your coat and lout. A lout is a hat. That's an Irish hat. word for a hat. So, yeah. you know, he did that in the original uh, recordings. But then I guess he was like, oh, these people don't understand Irish uh, language. So I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, language from Ireland. So he, he used the regular English words for it. But I, I thought it was cool to hear the uh, 
Breen Bracca, Gabby's mother. Thank you for the $5 super chat. Gabby's mother or father may have been called by her daughter if she was in jail. They may have helped uh, Gabby see the danger. You know, uh, Brené Bracca, I, I, you know, something, that is something I would never think of. And you're probably right. That is a possibility, you know. But if they would have both been arrested, they would have both got out the next day. They would have just saw a judge. He would have released them. I don't even know if he could issue an order of protection because they were living together. So I don't know what the judge would have uh, would have done in that situation. But, you know, if they're traveling together in a van, how is he going to issue an order of protection, which is really that's done in almost every domestic violence incident? Well, you know what, Bill, real quick, she does make a point that if my daughters were on a road trip and one of their uh, boyfriends, uh, they were involved in it, and even if my daughter was arrested as well as the boyfriend, and, and I get the details that, uh, you know, he put his hands on my daughter, I'm, I'm racing out there and taking her back, and uh, I'll probably uh, have a few words with him as well, but that's another story. So, yeah, maybe that could have uh, maybe prevented this whole horrible thing, but, uh, you know, we went through it so many times. There just really wasn't enough information we don't know what their standards are. Like you said, how do you issue an order of protection on two people when they're living in a van and stuff? So we think that the police did as much as they could possibly do. And I don't think that uh, Gabby's family holds any ill will towards the police in Moab. I, I doubt very highly they do. They haven't said anything like that if they do. So, but uh, it is what it is, you know? Absolutely. Holy cats. You had a great uh, little, holy cats. Best fun ever, listening to an Irishman and a Scottishman arguing football. <laughs> yeah, I guess you must see, you must hear that. In, oh, no, Joe Murray's back. Uh-oh. Uh, thank you again, Joe, for the $10 super chat. They were at a campsite and separated due to another DV. Brian returned to find her murdered. He couldn't do anything for Gabby, and if he called the police, he would have been jailed with no bail. Well, that's, you know, that, Joe, that's your... Um, you're creating doubt. We don't know, but th there could be forensic evidence that he is, in fact, the killer. But we don't know about that right now. So, again, you're creating doubt, and the doubt you're creating could be a possibility, but it also could be, you know, thwarted by, uh, by forensic evidence, by physical evidence. Boy, he's in full defense attorney mode tonight. <laughs> Joe Murray, if, boy, oh boy, if you need a defense attorney, he's hot tonight. That's right. That's right. Joe is, but we love him anyway. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So tomorrow at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Phil and I are going to be on Gisela. Gisela, I, that's the hardest name to say, Gisela K's show at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I don't know what time that makes it in the Netherlands, but she uh, accommodates us on us. I, I think so, it's like eleven o'clock at night or twelve o'clock at night, Bill. But uh, well, I don't think I don't 11. think she I don't think Gisela ever sleeps. So uh, yeah. that's that's perfect for her. So I, you know, Phil, we've been uh, live for about an, almost an hour and fifteen minutes. So as I do every time, uh, I'm going to give you some the final words. Final words. I just want to bring up a point. Uh, you know, we were talking about the uh, protests going on over at the laundry home and feeling bad for the neighbors and stuff like that. All I can say about that is, and I'm not uh, endorsing uh, breaking the law, trespassing, anything like that. But just think about, uh, you know, you feel bad for the neighbors. I do too. But 
the family of Gabby Petito. Just think about how bad they feel. They lost their daughter. So anytime uh, people were bringing up, uh, you know, those poor neighbors, yeah, I get it. I, I have sympathy for them, but uh, I have just a little bit more sympathy for Gabby Petito's family. Condolences for them, and uh, hopefully they're uh, going to get some justice real soon. That's what I'm hoping for, and that's what I'm praying for. Absolutely. You know, we when sometimes when we cover these um, – cases, I always want to be cognizant of the fact that these are real people that we're talking about. This isn't just some story that we're reporting. These are real people. And we realize that. I mean, Phil and I have both investigated uh, hundreds of homicides. And um, we know that the human toll this takes. And, you know, not, and of course, the family, uh, the most horrendous human toll, but you guys too. You, know, you guys follow these cases. Many of you get, uh, emotionally involved in these cases. And um, we try to handle them with the utmost sensitivity that we can as possible. You know, with all of that said, uh, from uh, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, I'm Bill Cannon. And on behalf of myself, and my co-host, Phil Grimaldi, good night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe. One episode, just ain't enough.